Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for October 17, 2022. Here's today's rundown. The Office of Inspector General is cracking down on Medicare Advantage plans for denials of DRG validations. Reporting our lead story today is physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, Matthew Albright, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, we are under the public health emergency. It was extended last Thursday. The PHC will continue for another 90 days. Meanwhile, we have much news to report, and we begin this morning with physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Good morning, Chuck. Well, I was all set to dive into the OIG September audits of Humana Choice and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee when I listened to Ron's segment on Cigna HealthSpring. I was also struck by the low error rate. As I dug in, it became clear that although all three talk about validating diagnoses, Cigna is really a hierarchical condition category or HCC audit. But Cigna is nonetheless worthy for three reasons. First, HCCs are a derivative measure, so an errant diagnosis may not immediately be fatal. Second, an error rate this low means that the OIG is unlikely to continue this type of audit. Finally, and perhaps most important, the OIG reiterated that, and this is a quote that's important, incorrect diagnosis codes are errors that lead to improper payments even if the payment is less than it should be. So the OIG recommended in the Blue Cross and Humana audits that they recover, or in Cigna rather, that they recover less than $40,000. That's probably less than the OIG's cost of the audit. I'm not sure how that prevents waste, but they did it anyway. So once I satisfied myself on Cigna, I headed back over to Humana Choice and Blue Cross of Tennessee. Each of these was an extrapolated audit purporting to validate high-risk diagnoses. The nine diagnoses included were acute stroke, acute heart attack, embolism, vascular claudication, major depressive disorder, and four cancers, lung, breast, colon, and prostate. The OIG claimed there was an overall error rate of 77% for Humana and 78% for Blue Cross. But those numbers are deceiving because the OIG claimed a 100% error rate for breast cancer for both payers. Blue Cross had a 100% error rate for acute heart attack, and Humana had a 100% error rate for acute stroke. Only vascular claudication and major depressive disorder had error rates reported less than 90%. Both payers challenged the reviewer's knowledge and skill, the coding practices, and the OIG's failure to adhere to CMS's own Medicare risk adjustment validation methodology. The OIG dismissed the challenges with the usual response of, we're the OIG. The Humana contested findings for 10 claims in five diagnoses, and Blue Cross contested 14 claims in seven diagnoses. Now, assuming Humana was actually correct on every contested claim, it still has a 73% error rate. Similarly, if the Blues is correct on its contested diagnoses, it still has a 73% error rate as well. So we should be concerned with the OIG's audit in this case, not just because they're auditing MAs, 
but because the definitions of diagnoses described with the OIG may not correspond to our typical coding criteria. Next, payers are taking these diagnoses from the submitted claims. That means the OIG and payers will likely find similarly high error rates when providers are audited. Third, rates means that the OIG will continue these audits and I expect them to expand to providers. Fourth, payers will further limit services or increase scrutiny of claims so they can offset these, these losses. And finally, the OIG acknowledges it continues to audit using standards different than CMS, payers, or providers are using, thus assuring high error rates. Coding denials such as this may not have the same ambiguity as status denials and may be harder to appeal, so providers now must begin to take steps to assure that every diagnosis is consistent with recognized diagnostic criteria and comprehensively documented to meet coding requirements. And finally, we as providers need to leverage our CDI and coding teams to distinguish between current diagnoses and historical diagnoses. It's a whole new ballgame, Chuck. Back to you. That was Dr. John K. Hall. Dr. Hall is a physician and an attorney. This morning he was substituting for Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Now it's the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Always challenge the extrapolation. It is my personal opinion that extrapolation is used too loosely. What I mean by that is that sample sizes are usually too small to constitute a valid representation of the provider's claims. Say a provider bills 10,000 claims. Is a sample of 50 adequate? Well, in a 2020 case, Palmetto audited 0.0051% of claims by Palm Valley. And Palm Valley challenged CMS's sample and extrapolation method. As an aside, I had two back-to-back extrapolation cases recently, and the provider, however, did not hire me until the ALJ level or the third level of the Medicare provider appeals. And unfortunately, no one argued that the extrapolation was faulty at the first two levels. We had two different ALJs, but both ALJs ruled that the provider could not raise new arguments i.e. that the extrapolation was erroneous at the third level. They decided that all arguments should be raised from the beginning. This is just a reminder that A, raise all defenses immediately, and B, don't try the first two levels without an attorney. Going back to Palm Valley, the Fifth Circuit held that while the statistical sampling methodology may not be the most precise methodology available, CMS's selection methodology did represent a valid, complex balance of interest. Principally, the court noted and quoted the Medicare Appeals Council that CMS's methodology was justified by the real-world constraints imposed by conflicting demands on limited public funds and that Congress clearly envisioned extrapolation being applied to calculate overpayments in instances like this. Well, I disagree with this result. I find it infuriating that auditors like Palmetto can scrutinize providers' claims, yet circumvent similar accountability. 
they are being allowed to conduct a quote-unquote hack job at extrapolating to the financial detriment of the provider. Interestingly, Palm Valley's Fifth Circuit decision was rendered in 2020. The dates of service of the claims Palmetto audited were July 2006 to January 2009. It just shows how long the legal battle can be in Medicare audits. Also, Palm Valley's error rate was 53.7. Remember, in 2019, CMS revised the extrapolation rules to allow extrapolations in 50% or higher error rates. So they were 3.7% over to be allowed to extrapolate. If you want to read the extrapolation rules, you can find them in Chapter 8 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 11 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, and Matthew Albright. This is Monday. It's October the 17th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Mistakes and omissions continue to plague coding and documentation for outpatient infusion and injection services, but it doesn't have to be that way. Now everyone on your team can receive the high-quality how-to education they need anytime they need it with the MedLearn Publishing Infusion and Injection All-Access Pass. And for a limited time, when you order the new Infusion and Injection All-Access Pass, You'll also have access to the 2022 resources to guide you through the rest of the year. And then, on January 1st, you'll have access to the 2023 editions as well as the 2022 resources. You get two years for one low fee. Subscribe today to the All Access Pass for Infusion and Injection. That's the All Access Pass for Infusion and Injection. Get your All Access Pass today. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday morning about this time, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's obsessing about attorney-client privilege at times that it doesn't matter. Now, to be fair, that it really isn't accurate to characterize this as a risk. It's more of a common misunderstanding, but still important. So when investigating an issue to determine whether or not you've received a Medicare overpayment, I historically recommended that the work be done under the direction of an attorney. This allowed the internal investigation to be confidential because of the attorney-client privilege. And to be clear, that doesn't mean that the attorney has to do the work, him or herself, it just has to be under their direction. However, since the advent of the 60-day rule, or really the 60-day statute, which happened back in 2010, it's far less clear to me that using the attorney-client privilege offers any meaningful value when you're doing a refund analysis. Under the 60-day statute, if your internal review determines that you received money that you were not entitled to keep under the Social Security Act, you must report that situation and refund the money within 60 days of identifying the overpayment. Functionally, identifying an overpayment means quantifying it. So you get a reasonable amount of time, say about six months, to figure out whether or not you have an overpayment and, if you conclude that you do, another 60 days to return it. The fact that the review was conducted under the scope of an attorney-client privilege will not in any way lessen your obligation to refund the overpayment, 
and you will still be required to disclose the facts that gave rise to the overpayment. In short, if the review concludes that there is an overpayment, the fact that the review is privileged won't likely make much of a difference. Now, what if the review concludes that all the payments were proper and no refund is necessary? Well, if someone later questions the payment, you will presumably want to disclose the results of your internal investigation to justify your decision to keep the money. The bottom line is that when you're analyzing a potential overpayment, I have a hard time seeing a situation in which the attorney-client privilege will make a material difference in whether the information stays confidential. To be clear, there are still sometimes or some types of investigations where privilege matters. Many other possible allegations of impropriety, like a potential kickback violation or medical malpractice or sexual harassment. In those cases, the attorney-client privilege can still offer some help. In those investigations, particularly if it relates to patient care, peer review protection might offer an even stronger level uh, of protection. It's worth noting in some states, you might have to choose whether you're going to use the peer review protection or the attorney-client privilege it's possible that both will not be available to you. If you opt to use the attorney-client privilege, remember that means an attorney must be directing the investigation and the information must be kept confidential. Now to be clear, I don't think there's any harm in using an attorney to conduct the investigation, and it's often quite valuable. For example, we will often review overpayments on a flat fee basis. In one client of ours, we did a $1,000 review and told them they could avoid a $9 million refund, right? That was worth the fee. There's another reason to use counsel, which is it can make certain that your findings are worded in a way to minimize the harm. So using an attorney can be totally a good use of resources. I'm merely indicating that privilege is often less important than people think. So Chuck, I guess what I'm saying is that in the old days, I thought it was important for the attorney to personally run all investigations. Now, I think there are times where it's appropriate to, well, paraphrasing the words of Elvis Costello, just be watching the detectives. Back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany, and what do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Good morning, everyone, and good morning, Chuck. So I'm going to talk a little bit about JAMA. They posted a great opinion piece last week titled Readmission Reduction as a Hospital Quality Measure. Time to move on to more pressing concerns. At first, I was sure this was written by Dr. Hirsch. However, credit is due to Dr. Cram, Wachter, and Landon. As usual, I will include the link in my article out this week. The article is timely as CMS has just released in their 2023 IPPS ruling a return for the Hospital Readmission Reduction Program, popularly known as HRRP, with adjustments to pneumonia readmission rates to start again in FY 2024. 
The opinions in this article are strongly voting against the continuation of the HRRP stating persistent focus on readmissions during the past decade, although undoubtedly leading to some improvements in care, has had minimal demonstrable benefit. Moreover, the HRRP has distracted clinicians and health system leaders from other crucial quality concerns. Wow. Okay. So the article recommends a phased out approach of the HRRP. So what is their justification? Here's what they're looking at for why they have this opinion. One, they argue that there's gains to the readmission program were already achieved earlier in the program's inception and question if this is still a meaningful focus for hospitals. They state with the increase in population health initiatives and ACOs, the focus on readmissions is occurring in other areas and does not necessarily also need to occur through the HRRP program. They questioned if hospitals have figured out how to game the system through placing patients back in the hospital under observation level of care. And they highlighted international studies where there's no readmission program like this. um, And they noted that they were achieving similar results to the U.S. So, okay, so what is this article recommending instead? They're not saying hospital readmissions are not important, but they are saying maybe after 10 years, we should adjust our efforts and resources towards metrics and safety factors that are controllable during the patient's hospitalization and allow our population health groups to continue to address the issues surrounding inappropriate hospital utilization. So I thought this would be a fun listener survey. Do you think hospital readmissions is still an important measure for CMS to track for inpatient hospital quality initiatives under our HRRP program? Yes, no, or unsure. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Tiffany, very much. That was senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson, chief executive officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday survey later in this broadcast. Up next, the Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright. The Monitor Monday legislative update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thank you, Chuck. If you're feeling extra productive and accomplished this morning and want to bring yourself back to dismal reality, take a look at the regulatory dashboard on the website of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA. The OIRA regulatory dashboard shows, in real time, the number of federal regulations that are in their last phase of review at the White House, getting ready for the stamp of approval by the Office of Management and Budget before being published in the Federal Register. There are a total of about 100 federal regulatory agencies, but only about 15 agencies that we really hear about, and those are the agencies that sit on the president's cabinet. OIRA's regulatory dashboard gives a snapshot of the top 10 agencies that are putting out the most regulations at any time. Almost without fail, Department of Health and Human Services always has the most regulations that are about to be approved, and usually by a long shot. Last night, for instance, because I needed something to go with my Chianti and my overall sense of angst, 
I visited OIRA's regulatory dashboard and found that HHS has 30 regulations waiting to be published. That's three times the second place winner, the EPA. And HHS has more regs in waiting than the bottom five finishers combined, including the USDA, the Department of Labor, HUD, the Office of Personal Management, and the Department of Energy. To say that healthcare is the most regulated industry is an understatement. The 2021 American Hospital Association study concluded that health systems, hospitals, and post-acute providers spend nearly $40 billion a year on activities related to regulatory compliance. That equates to an average cost of $1,200,000 per patient or nearly $50,000 per hospital per year. Data from 2017 found that health systems and hospitals must comply with 630 discrete regulatory requirements, and that was in 2017. Imagine what it is now in the wake of the No Surprises Act and the transparency requirements. Which brings us to last week, when the Medical Group Management Association, or MGMA, published results of its annual survey on regulatory burden. Of the 500 group practices that were surveyed, nearly 9 in 10 reported that the regulatory load on their business had increased over the past year. The biggest burdens this year were prior authorization and surprise billing and good faith estimate requirements. Over 80% thought that obtaining prior authorization was very or extremely onerous, with 95% of the respondents stating that patients had faced delays or denials for medical care because of prior auth. Over 70% struggle with surprise billing and good faith estimates. On the bright side, a whole 1% of the 500 surveyed thought that the regulatory burden had actually declined. Chuck, I want to offer my humble apologies to anyone whose day I've ruined. Back to you. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was Matthew Albright. Matthew was the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday Listener Survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. I asked, do you think hospital readmissions is still an important measure for CMS to track for inpatient hospital quality initiatives under the hospital readmission reduction program? And the majority of our listeners, actually, were pretty close. So 44.7% said yes. About 37% said no, and the rest were unsure. So uh, we're not too far off from a yes-no kind of split here. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much for your survey. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Too many regulatory changes, too many auditors, too many instances where if you're not up to date, it could cost your facility an audit. These are tough times for providers, and the outlook on the audit landscape is frightening. But help is available. Now more than ever, this is the time, and Rack Monitor is the place for you to get on board with a Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast subscription. In this fast-paced regulatory environment, your team will benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory educational topics from the industry's most respected source of compliance, auditing news, and education, Rack Monitor. The Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Series will ensure that your team remains compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks. Subscribe now at the Rack University Bookstore. Now's the time for our Monday Q&A. So, David, let's take a look at some of the questions you've been receiving since we've been on the air this morning. Okay? 
You bet, Doc. So I want to start. I'm going to ask a question of our audience. So my segment next week is going to be about enforcement under the No Surprises Act, because I've got a client that's seeing it in spades. So I'm asking our listeners, do you know of any enforcement under the No Surprises Act? If you do, I'd love to hear the story. Send me an email. Um, heck, price transparency is its close friend. If you want to include that, we can go there. So first question is for you, John. So in your segment, you mentioned that the OIG thinks that if you undercode, that is still a coding mistake. And I, I get that, an undercode is still a mistake. But is it fraud? The answer is yes. You don't have to overpay yourself to commit fraud. Well, but let me give you a qualified yes. It, it's, it's fraud is based on intent. And if you don't have the intent to miscode this, then you're not committing fraud. So the intent part of fraud is always harder to prove. But systematically underpaying yourself um, is still not permitted. There's an apocryphal case out of... Uh, uh, one of the Texas federal courts from the middle 90s, or early 90s, of a family practitioner who could never figure out how to code and had his wife as his office manager and coded everything at a level two. So I'm going to disagree and, with you on that one. I think if you're underpaid, you are not. I think fraud requires uh, an overpayment. And in fact, there's an AAPC FAQ about this that comes out, I think, the wrong way, which basically it sets up fraud as getting money you're not entitled to. Uh, through a lie. And I would agree with that definition. And I think if you haven't gotten the excess money, I would say it that you can be, it's a mistake, but I would argue not a fraud. Um, and I, I would argue under the False Claims Act, not material. But um, I, we should, I don't know, I want to see this case, because if I'm wrong, I'd like to, I'll have to I, pro. Like I said, it's apocryphal, and so far no one's been able to show me the case. But uh, folks in Texas talk about it all the time. But I, I would agree, it's probably not material, and I doubt that most uh, most prosecutors are going to waste their time on someone who's dumb enough to under. My my thought was, if they if they convict you, do they make you take money? Yeah, no, I, I think I I would feel very comfortable saying that is that is not fraud. Uh, Nicole, yeah. we've got an interesting question here. Uh, from Joe, what's the legal basis for saying arguments are uh, that you don't raise at the first two levels of appeal at the uh, reconsideration and redetermination level uh, are waived when you get to the quit? Uh, I'm sorry, when you get to the ALJ level. Well, I pulled up in in to respond to this question. I pulled up the actual decision of one of the cases that I had, and I have got to uh, reiterate that I may have misspoken in my uh, uh, my segment, what the case says is that the ALJ said that the appellate did not assert the reasons for disagreement with the methodology in its request for hearing. And now that's different than not raising them at the, at the first two levels. Apparently, this client appealed to the third level, then hired me and failed to insert the argument against the extrapolation in the request for notice of hearing. And I want to make sure I clarify that. Thank you. Although you're totally right, Nicole, that if, if, the first, if, if there is evidence that you do not raise at the first two levels, you're not allowed to introduce new evidence uh, at the ALJ level. It's in the 405s. I'm not going to remember the number off the top of my head. But... Um, uh, kind of to your point, one one of the things, and the uh, the former chief ALJ made this point uh, at a presentation where she and I were presenting together. There's a difference 
between new evidence and new arguments. So you aren't allowed to introduce right. new evidence at the ALJ level, but you can come up with a new argument. Now, the tough thing with statistical things is you may want to, for example, bring in a Frank Cohen or some statistician to make your argument. Yeah, if you're going to challenge the extrapolation, you're going to want a statistical analyst and that evidence would not be allowed. But I agree with you on the argument. There's a practical thing, which is you can't, you can't do testimony at the first two levels. But what I encourage people to do is, you definitely, is to use some, an affidavit. If you want to challenge the statistics, you know, at, the, at one of the earlier two levels, make clear that that's where you're going. All right. Uh, I've got a question for you, Tiffany. Kathy raised a question, and she said, I'm not sure if it's on today's topic, and that's, that's okay. We, are, we invite questions on any topic. We won't always have time to get to them, but please ask away. So um, do you want to comment on a, a hospital that admits all patients to outpatient observation rather than inpatient to avoid Medicare Advantage denials on the inpatient care, um, knowing that they'll pay and cover outpatient observation? Do you have thoughts on that? I do. So I am assuming that the hospital is taking the path of least resistance, least resistance with the Medicare Advantage payers, because I'm sure they will happily underpay the hospital for the services um, that those patients are needing. However, I think it's a high concern of risk, and I think it's a bad behavior. Uh, if the patient meets medical necessity to be in the hospital under inpatient, then we should appropriately status that patient as inpatient and not put them in observation first, just so we don't have to deal with the Advantage plans. I, I think that could bleed over beyond once you create that habit, then you're now potentially in a non-compliant process with Medicare traditional fee-for-service. Um, your Medicaid plans, your commercials, I think your physicians would probably just put everyone in OBS. Um, and unless you have round-the-clock 24-7 UR that could be helping in physician advisors to get the appropriate status converted, you're going to miss a lot of that. And I don't think the CFOs are going to love that either when they look at their data and see that their patients are primarily all in observation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Tiffany. And with traditional Medicare, you could then be shorting people out of their SNF benefits. Well, Chuck, I turn it back to you and have a great week. Thanks, David, very much. And that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Buddy. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists this morning, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, and physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall, who reported our lead story. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review. And one more thing before we go, be sure to join me tomorrow on Talk Gen Tuesday for our new series on patient safety indicators. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Everybody have a great week. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.